This is Daryl Wood, host of Run to Win, the Daryl Wood Show on Faith Talk 1500. First, let me say this show is your show. That's why no matter what I discuss or which guests I interview, your input is value. If it's in the news, on TV, or at the movies, whether political, social, economic, or whatever, at some point I'm talking about it on Run to Win, the Daryl Wood Show, Monday through Thursday from 4 to 6 p.m. on Faith Talk 1500. Thank you for listening to Embrace the Truth, the teaching and apologetics ministry of Abdu Murray. Abdu spent most of his life as a serious Muslim, but after examining the evidence for the gospel and struggling with the emotional price that would come with changing his entire worldview, Abdu committed his life to Jesus Christ. Since coming to the Christian faith, he's become an international apologist, author, and professor. He is dedicated to engaging non-Christians with the credibility of the gospel in ways that touch the heart and the mind as well as equipping Christians to do the same. Support for this ministry comes from our listeners' generous gifts and donations. For this podcast and other information about Embrace the Truth, please visit our website at www.embracethetruth.org or call us at 888-84-TRUTH. This week on Embrace the Truth, Abdu discusses the importance of being in the world. Jesus' prayer in John 17 reminds us that even in his day, there were enemies of the gospel who hated those who followed him. His disciples had purpose in their world just as we do today, to reach the enemies Jesus prayed for centuries ago. Now, I want to begin today by telling you about an event that happened not too long ago, in March 2012, actually, in Washington, D.C., at the National Mall. There was a gathering there. You may have heard about it. It was intended to be a huge gathering, but it wasn't as big as they had hoped, but it was big enough. It was called the Reason Rally. Richard Dawkins, one of the most famous atheists in the world today, who wrote the millions best-selling God Delusion, got together and sent out an e-blast and invites to hundreds of thousands of atheists to come together at the mall, the National Mall in Washington, D.C., and to do a rally, sort of like a, what Christians would do as a religious, religious rally. He calls it the Reason Rally, because, arrogantly enough, he thinks that only people who don't believe in God have a corner on reason. So the Reason Rally comes together, and all these atheists from various stripes, both uh, celebrity atheists and uh, professors and Richard Dawkins and authors and others, they come together to talk about why they extol the values of reason. But part of it was really just to bash religion. I want you to hear something that Richard Dawkins actually said at this rally. Here's what he said. So when I meet somebody who claims to be religious, my first impulse is, I don't believe you. I don't believe you until you tell me, do you really believe, for example, if they say they're Catholic, he says, do you really believe that when a priest blesses a wafer, it turns into the body of Christ? Are you seriously telling me you believe that? Are you seriously saying that wine turns into blood? Mock them. Ridicule them. In public. Don't fall for the convention that we're all too polite to talk about religion. Religion is not off the table. Religion is not off limits. Religion makes specific claims, he goes on to say, about the universe, which need to be substantiated and need to be challenged, and, if necessary, need to be ridiculed with contempt. That's stridency. 
That's not the atheism of your grandfather day. Back in the day when sort of was polite to disagree with somebody and you didn't sort of make fun of them for it. It's over now. The gauntlet's been thrown down. It's a purposeful atheism. It's a purposeful secularization that's going on in our world. That's happening all around us. If you don't think it's happening, just walk into the nearest public school and sit around for a couple hours and see what's happening there. There's a stridency to this. Open up a textbook and you'll see it. Listen to one of these millions copies of, of books being sold, these authors who sell millions of copies of their books who are atheists, and you'll find out this is happening. And they're not alone in this, by the way. It's not just the secularizers who are doing this, who are challenging the Christian worldview. Other worldviews and people are starting to challenge it with a certain stridency. They have their own agendas, and they're not being bashful about it. They're trying to silence Christians as being intolerant and their worldview as being enlightened. Christians are bigoted, but they're inclusive. You see this all over the world. This is happening, especially here in the West. They're even saying that Christians are breathing out by simply preaching the Bible, by the way. Simply literally quoting the Bible. You're uttering illegal hate speech. And all you're doing is reading the holy book that you've grown up with. Something was similar was happening in Jesus' day. And I want to highlight that. Something similar happening in his day. It was a clash of worldviews. This is not a new thing, by the way. Ladies and gentlemen, the idea that there's a worldview clash happening, while the, the method by which it's happening, sort of the stridency and almost the, the, uh, the angry tone that it's taken on in our day, is not, it, it, that might be new. The actual railing against Christian values and against God is not new. It's thousands of years old. It even predates Jesus, but it was happening specifically in Jesus' day. Think about this. What was happening in his day? He had a Roman rule a polytheistic pagan rule that's happening in this Judean province where they were monotheists, and the fledgling Christian religion was, was born there. The fledgling movement was born there. It was born in a hostile political environment by the Romans and a hostile religious environment for the Jews who didn't accept Jesus as Messiah. That's what you began to see. So there was a clash of worldviews. It's almost like the perfect storm of worldviews happening right there in the, for, in the, in, in the, in the forging of the world's most influential spiritual movement of all time, Christianity. It was happening there. What did Jesus do? Did he gather a rally together and start speaking and preaching against the establishment or getting angry about things and saying we have to mock and ridicule those who oppose us? Did he do that? He did form a rally, actually. He gathered some disciples. And in John chapter 17, he prayed with them. He prayed with them and for them. And not just for them but for others around them. He didn't say mock them. He didn't say ridicule them. He didn't say do it with contempt. Here's what he said. If you'll indulge me, let me read it at length for you. Jesus' prayer. I have manifested your name, O Lord, to the people. He's talking to the Father, of course, whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Unity in the body, ladies and gentlemen. 
While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may be joy-filled, that they, they, sorry, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world, the world has hated them, because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You see what's happening so far in this prayer? God is pray Jesus is praying to God the Father on behalf of the disciples who have come to him, and who have stuck by him, and have been his, his compatriots, the ones that he has discipled and taught and, and, and fostered in this idea to go out and preach the gospel to the world. He's saying the world will hate them. Richard Dawkins certainly doesn't like them very much, but keep them in the world, Lord. Don't take them away from the hatred. They will be hated, but don't take them away from it because the world that hates them needs them. He goes on, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. I love that statement, by the way. I have to pause just for a moment because sometimes I read scripture and it strikes me as unbelievably poetic. Who is saying that? Sanctify them in your word. Your, in, sorry, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Who's saying this? The way, the truth, and the life. Sanctify them in the truth. Because your word, the divine logos, in the beginning was the word, is truth. You see how beautiful that is? Jesus, God the word, made flesh. The one who is the truth, who claimed to be the truth, is asking God the Father to sanctify his disciples in the truth because God the Word is true. You, you just can't make that up. That's, that's, that's gorgeousness that, that I don't think human beings are capable of, of, of fathoming. So he, after he says this, he says, and as you sent me into the world now, this is the important part, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Indulge me for just a moment longer, because he's sending them into the world now, the world that hates them. He says, I do not ask for these only. You see what he's done? He's not just said, my followers, my flock, those who like me. I'm not just asking you to, to bless them. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Those who are not yet believers. Those who are at enmity with God. I'm praying for those who will believe because of these men that you've given me. That they also may be all one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He goes on in verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Richard Dawkins, mock them, ridicule them in public, with contempt, Jesus says, those who don't agree with me, Father, bless them. Do you see a character difference? Is there something not of a black and white distinction to be made? There's something so amazing about the way Jesus approaches everything. That's why in three short years of public ministry, three years, think about the last time, think three years ago in your own life. Even if you're a young person, you can think back three years ago and say, my goodness, I remember it like, like it was yesterday. That is not a long time. It's not. My son was born ten years ago. I can remember it like it was yesterday. Like, right in front of my eyes. Jesus spent three years 
in some obscure province of the Roman Empire, and he changed the world. That's why. Not because he spoke with such thunderous power, although he had that. Not because he had his eloquent words, although he had that. Not because he was kind and genteel to children, although he had that. Not because he could overturn the hucksters' money changers' uh, tables, although he did that. Because he said things like this. He lived it to the end. Jesus was a voice for the Father. He was the Word. A Christian is a mind through which Christ thinks and a voice through which Christ speaks. Do you speak like this? Or do you speak like Richard Dawkins? Your worldview dictates your speech. The one you follow dictates your speech. I want to take some time to take us through three important aspects of what Jesus is saying here that emerge from these passages during this time of this worldview collision. Because it's happening in our day, and if you're not ready for it, you're going to be a casualty of it. I want to take us through some of those aspects. The first one is this, and it fits right into the theme of the entire camp week, which is unity. The unity he's preaching. In John 17, verse 11, he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. You know what he's speaking of, of course? He's speaking of unity in message, in voice. He's saying, keep them in me and in you, and, and keep them in your name, as you and I are one. Jesus spoke the Father's message. He did what the Father asked him. He's saying, Lord, keep them in that way, so that they can be your voice as well. In that verse, Jesus is praying specifically for his disciples, those who were with him in those years. But in verses 20 and 21, he expands the prayer. He goes beyond just those who are with him to cover us, believers, centuries later. He had you in mind 20 centuries ago. 20 centuries ago, he had you in mind. That's simply astonishing. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through your word, for they will all, so that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, they also may be in us. See, the horizontal unity that we can enjoy as a body of believers, or as new people who come into the fold of those who follow Christ now, and if you don't follow Christ, I'm going to ask you, have you has he been stirring in your heart these past few days? Say, so, you know, what is this about? What is this unity? Is it just a man-made community, or is it something more? Is it more special than that? As he's saying, you have this vertical, this horizontal community. That only results from one thing. The horizontal unity among us results from the vertical unity we have with God the Father. You can't have horizontal unity unless you have vertical unity. It won't happen. The scripture tells us that, and I think the world shows us that. The world does not know Christ. Most of the world does not follow Jesus. Sure, Christianity is considered the biggest religion in the world, although I, sometimes I wonder about that. Most of the world does not follow Christ. Does it look like there's anything like unity in the world? In fact, I would even venture to say that sometimes Christians don't even look very unified. And part of the reason I think that is is because someone once asked me, what's the biggest religion in the world? Islam is the second largest religion in the world. What's the biggest religion in the world? I don't say Christianity. I say good personism. I think that's the biggest religion in the world. How many Christians do you know who claim to believe the Bible who say good people go to heaven? Can you show me where that is? I've looked. I don't find it. Narrow is the gate, and few are those who enter. Why is there disunity in Christendom? Maybe because they're not actually following the, the, the man who said these things. 
the horizontal unity results from the vertical. Unity in the essentials, however. We have to have unity in our essentials. It was Augustine, the church father, who said this. Now, there's all these differences among Christian um, denominations. You know, when you should get baptized, how you should get baptized, do you speak in tongues, do you not speak in tongues, do you raise your hands, do you not raise your hands, you know, uh, once saved, always saved, well, can you lose your salvation? All these things are all these differences, and they're important. We should, we should debate these things, vigorously debate them. We shouldn't divide over them. Augustine said this. It's a beautiful statement. He said, in non-essentials, liberty. In those things that are not essentials of the Christian faith, liberty. In essentials, unity. And in all things, charity or love. In all things, even for those who disagree with us. We're supposed to have that. But what is the unity we're called to? It is the unity of the essentials of the gospel. It's the life of Jesus as the incarnate word made flesh of him coming and living a perfect life and paying a price that you and I can never afford to pay. We deserve to pay it, but we can't afford to pay it. Reconciling the world to God, and we know he's right because he rose from the dead. Now compare that, the unity of the body of Christ, with the growing unity you see among secular humanists, among atheists. They're, they're unionizing, as it were. It's happening. Are you aware of this phenomenon, these things called Sunday assemblies? Do you know what this is, a Sunday assembly? A Sunday assembly is a union of atheists for a service on Sundays. What are they talking about? I don't know. I don't go to those services. I imagine they talk about social issues and they maybe talk about politics and maybe you know whatever charitable event they're going to be uh, participating in. I, I was driving uh, to the airport not too long ago and I saw a sign that said this road was dedicated and it's going to be maintained by the Detroit Atheist Roundup. So they're doing stuff. I mean, sure, they're doing stuff. We have a lot of hospitals, by the way. Christians have tons of hospitals, so we're, we're, we're way ahead. But who's keeping score? But they're, 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 they're coming together on these things. There is a cohesiveness that they're having, that, that unity will never look like a Christian unity. Those who follow Christ, who believe what he says in John chapter 17, no one will ever look like that if you take it seriously. Now, they're making quite a path. It's happening. The Internet is allowing them to reach people, young people, children, in a way they never had access before. But thanks be to God, Christians are also using this tool that God has provided to us, technology, to reach out for the gospel as well. And so we can take advantage of that as well. We have to be unified in doing it. We have to follow Christ. So the first thing we need to get from these words is unity. Unity of message and unity in community. That's what we need to do. After all, ladies and gentlemen, we serve a God who is a being in community. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God, three eternal distinct persons living in community. If we don't have it, then we're not following him. We need to have it. So we have unity, but then we have knowledge. Jesus speaks specifically in this passage about knowledge, of something specific, something important. Is the important aspect of unity is not just relationships. It's not getting, getting together on Sundays, going to afterglows or whatever, and talking about various things you have common interests in. They do that at the Sunday assemblies. The atheists do that. You get together on the knowledge of something very important, that you are the handiwork of God, that Jesus Christ, God incarnate, paid the price for you, that you deserved death, but you were saved from it. And the person you're talking to, if they believe in Christ, 
they're saved from it as well. Do you know what kind of unity is, is born out of that knowledge? It's an incredible thing. John chapter 17, verses 7 to 8. Now they know, Jesus says, that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. There's a knowledge there about something important. Not just Jesus is a powerful teacher, Jesus is anti-Roman, or Jesus is whatever he might be. They know that he had come from God. They know because of what he's done and what he's said and what he's going to do that he has come from God. What do we have to have? What knowledge do we need? It's what C.S. Lewis called mere Christianity. Just the mere Christianity. The basics. The life, death, resurrection, and coming back of Jesus Christ. See, this is a stumbling block to various people, ladies and gentlemen. The Gospel says it will be a stumbling block. To the Jews, it is a stumbling block because it looks the cross suggests that God is weak, that the Messiah is weak, and that somehow he fails. To the Greeks, it looks like foolishness. They're the masters of all knowledge. They were the masters of the academy. And it looked like this cross that these Christians were preaching was foolishness. You mean your God dies? What is that? That looks like foolishness to them. And to the Romans, the Christians were setting up a, God, a, a king other than Caesar, who is Jesus, and they had to persecute that. It was a stumbling block altogether. But it was this knowledge of what it truly meant because the Bible says that the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. And what appears to be weakness is actually strength. When you understand that and see the paradox that's there, you can begin to share this with the world around you if you are God's voice. Translate that to the, Muslim, to, to the um, worldviews around us today. Muslims think that this worldview is silly. Muslims think that the idea of the cross, that God would come and die, God would literally come and die? How can God die? And not only just die, but at the hands of sinners he created. This is a weak God in the Muslim mindset. How can that be? A stumbling block. Jews say Jesus could not be the Messiah because the Messiah would promise us to usher in a world of peace and an era of peace. And do we have that peace? No, they say. It's a stumbling block. And the intelligentsia the Richard Dawkins of our, of our days and all these folks say, it's all silly, the whole enterprise is goofy, get rid of it, chuck it, in fact, mock it. That's happening in our days. We have to have knowledge because they're going to challenge you on this. If someone asked you today, can you tell me how it is your God died? What would your response be? How would you respond to a Muslim who says, look, I believe in a God who's all-powerful. Do you? Yes. He's all-powerful? Yes. Is he eternal? Yes. Can he die? No. Did he? What do you say? Do you have knowledge how to explain it? Can you say, look, this is what we mean by this, and this is how it goes in a way that's credible. You need that unity of knowledge. If you have it, if you have the unity of community within the body of Christ, and that unity is fostering a certain knowledge base within us to be able to strengthen each other so we can withstand the challenges that are coming our way and then be able to proclaim the truth as God's voice. We'll have a third thing that's pretty important. That's perseverance. See, these things together, unity and knowledge, they produce in us those who cling to the Christian worldview. The third thing that Jesus mentioned in this passage, and that's perseverance. In John chapter 17, verses 13 to 14, these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy 
fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world. Our calling to remain in the world is sanctified by the truth, Jesus, who spoke in John 17 of unity, knowledge, and perseverance. These characteristics, when directed vertically toward God, give us the tools we need to respond to the toughest opponents we may face in this world. Dear friends, this is Abdu Murray, and I'm excited to tell you about my brand new book from InterVarsity Press, Grand Central Question, Answering the Critical Concerns of the Major Worldviews. I'm equally excited to tell you that along with that book, we're offering some great free bonus materials for those who buy the book. Now, no matter where you got Grand Central Question from, whether it's from our website, Amazon.com, a bookstore, or even if you got it as a gift, just go to GrandCentralQuestion.com. That's GrandCentralQuestion.com. And click on the free bonus content tab in the middle of the page. You'll be asked to provide your name, email address, and the date and place where you purchased the book. You don't need a receipt, and you don't need to provide us with any additional information. We'll send you an email with a link to access four free videos to go along with each section of the book. These videos and resources are meant to help you absorb and later use the material in Grand Central Question, and I pray that they'll be a blessing to you. Thank you for tuning in to Embrace the Truth. We hope that this message has engaged your heart and mind. For this podcast and other information about Embrace the Truth, please visit our website at www.embracethetruth.org or call us at 888-84-TRUTH. Embrace the Truth International.